Thanks for joining today. This is a uh, fascinating time to be a politician. I'm not sure why really anyone would want to be one today. The uh, challenges we have in the uh, in the economy are pretty significant. And when we think about uh, what's going on for government leaders, they're facing cyclical challenges and secular challenges and really coming at a time where they don't have the wherewithal or the firepower to support the economies the way they did coming out of the past crises. I think right now you're dealing with about six or seven crises in, in, that all government leaders are dealing with, whether it's the war in Ukraine, whether it's the pandemic and the related health issues, whether it's the climate change issues, the food uh, crisis that we're facing around the world. There's demographic crises, debt crises, and energy crises going on all at the same time. And today, uh, the AAI bullish bearish sentiment indicator had for the eighth, uh, an eight, eight week low for bullish sentiment down at 21.9%. Uh, That's versus a 38 average. So you can get a sense of how far off people really are there. Bearish sentiment is at 50.4 versus an average historically of 30.5. And I think what government's leaders are facing, aside from a challenging economic environment, is concerns about uh, several different areas, but I'll highlight four of them. Um, three of them are crime, coups, uh, military coups, and then lastly, you have the cost of living issues that are, people are facing. And I think those are really weighing on a lot of people, but the other is employment. And I think when you think about the inflationary pressures and the employment issues that we're being faced with, and then in other economies, it's really the corruption issues. You can see why it's going to be such a challenge for, for government leaders. But as we come into the midterm, we've really seen a big switch in the U.S. where it looked like a, a slam dunk for the Republicans to take the House and take the Senate. Now we're in a very different spot, and you'll get a sense of that as we go through this. But how government leaders are going to be judged is going to be very much around how successful they are dealing with the short-term cyclical issues, but really their legacy is going to be how they deal with the secular ones. And I think this is a challenge for governments at a time where, where interest rates are rising, the dollar is quite strong, you have a lot less room for governments to step in and support the global system. So let's jump right into it. So this chart shows you um, really what the uh, a survey by uh, 538, and they're asking, you know, do you want a Republican or a Democrat Congress? And it really speaks to at 44.6% for Democrats and 43.6% for Republicans, just how split this country is and how tight um, the views are there. Um, and I think you're going to continue to see a lot of back and forth, and it's really going to depend on how well the economy is doing and how people feel feel their lot in life is progressing. And I think that's one of the things we're going to see weigh heavily on uh, the midterms as we come up. So let's just jump to the next slide here. And this is a different look from this survey, which is uh, on the left, it's will the Republicans win both chambers? There's a three in 100, uh, 32 in 100 uh, chance of that. There's virtually no chance of them winning the Senate and the House right now in terms of the survey. The Democrats winning the Senate and the Republicans winning the House is actually now 
uh, the favored category from the from the forecast. And then the Democrats winning both is not as high a, a level, just under a quarter percent. Um, when you look into it a little bit more, the Democrats are favored to slightly uh, by a little bit to maintain the House. I'm sorry, to maintain the Senate. And the way they look at this is um, uh, 538 does Simulations, they take the election and simulate it 40,000 times, see which party would win. And then from that, they do a sampling of, of it. And this says that 68 out of 100 times the, Repu- the Democrats would retain majority in the Senate. But you can see it's not a, it's not uh, clear. And when you look at it this way, you can see the range of distribution around these would give you a sense that it, it could go either way. And between now and the time the midterms come around, we're going to have a lot of economic uh, activity and a lot of economic announcements um, coming out that will weigh on uh, whether which way this pendulum swings here. But what's a bigger issue is how much this has changed in just a short period of time. And what you can see from the top chart is uh, the blue line, uh, obviously, on the upswing, the Republican red line on the downswing. And it really started just in July. Um, and that change is going to weigh on um, uh, sentiment. And we think that's a big switch. And we'll talk about why that happened in a minute. Um, when you switch to the House, Republicans are still favored to win the House by a pretty good amount. Um, uh, from the simulations, it's 76 out of 100 times. They would they will, will take the majority of the House. Um, I think what you can see here from the range of outcomes from this statistically, they're uh, look pretty strong here, uh, but the Democrats could pull it out. And I think part of the challenge is the um, the way the candidates are being put forth by the different parties is really going to have a big uh, issue. And, it, and in the Republican side, they're really setting up two types of candidates. It's the kind of the Trump supported candidates and it's the others. And I think that's creating some challenges for the Republicans and some confusion for the voters as to which way they're leaning. But I think this is one of the issues. And you can see the House hasn't changed anywhere near as much as the Senate has. And I think that's going to be one of the things we'll see weigh on sentiment for some time. So what's changed and why is, have things shifted? And I think this is an excellent chart from Andy LaPerriere at Piper Sandler, where he's looked at um, the shift um, with the odds of the Democrats holding the Senate. And he just took... Uh, from the date Roe v. Wade was overturned and then added the uh, Schumer Mansion announcement of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. And you can see that um, from a lot of uh, views in terms of the Democrats holding the Senate, it looks like, one, you'll get from the uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned a bigger turnout, and it's actually brought some people back into the election after they've been disgusted with our political situation for a while. That actually cut uh, caught a nerve and I think is going to bring a lot of people out who might have stayed on the sidelines. I think the Schumer Mansion announcement of the Inflation Reduction Act is a reflection of two things. One is the population wants to know that they're actually trying to do something to reduce the inflationary effects. And two is they want to see governments can actually operate and effectively legislate. Whether this is effective or not, will you know, the proofs will be in the pudding down the road. But it does show that there's a balance of uh, of taking opposing views. Mansions on worried about deficits and inflation. Schumer's and others worrying about um, providing more support to those most in need. And it, and it shows how this is aligned. 
But you can see this is turning down, too. And as we get tougher uh, inflation numbers, that's going to weigh on things for some time as well. And you'll see a lot of swings in this. And I think one of the things to keep in mind is the rate of change around the world has never been this great and will never be this slow again, meaning that things move at a much faster rate and uh, between even in a two month period between now and when the midterms are, are held, you can see some big swings. But I think there's another element of it. There's uh, both Biden and Trump loom heavy on this uh, next uh, midterms and also on the 2024 election. And I think what you can see from this chart is Biden's approval rating is kind of in line with many presidents uh, for some time. So he's he's bounced back from uh, record lows, but is now moving into a, a more positive uh, uh, category, still below 50 percent. I think he's he's trending around 44% now, but that's up against from 38% not too long ago. So he has made some change, but there's questions whether he should be uh, going for the next term or not, whether he's making the right decisions now. Um, but at the same time, you have Trump on the other side, and there's questions with uh, with things going on with him and with some of the candidates he's put forward, whether he still has the same juice that he had and can push them forward, and is that the way the party should go? So I think there's questions on both sides, and a lot of missteps could happen along the way that could either switch things back from one party to the other pretty quickly. So I think they're not a slam dunk for the Republicans anymore, but I don't think the swing towards the Democrats should be viewed as strongly as it is. The Inflation Reduction Act has had some mixed views on that. I think the um, there's questions on the uh, student loan forgiveness, whether that's good or bad, and that actually goes against some of their voters who either didn't take on the student debts because they never went to college, or um, they are uh, not on the view that they should be supporting others who did take their loans out. I think the Roe v. Wade decision is going to weigh very heavily on the midterms, but I, you know, as we said, Biden and Trump will be big issues for it. I think the latest CPI numbers, and keep in mind on inflation, I think we have nine more announcements or 11 more announcements between now and the next Fed meeting. So you're going to see a lot of news on inflation that will be swinging the, the views on that one way or the other. The latest job report did help, um, you know, ease some pressures on the Fed because it had a little bit of something for everybody. You had more people, labor force participation rate going up, which is good. It means the economy is strong and people are getting back into it. On the same token, you had the unemployment rate creep up. And as the, as Powell announced very clearly, you're going to have to see that go on. So it's not a great setup for the incumbents if uh, the best solution for the economy is to increase unemployment to bring inflation down. That doesn't leave you with very happy voters in the midterm. So I think it's not clear um, how it how the midterms do play out. I suspect it'll be not as uh, uh, it'll be more favorable to the Republicans than the trading markets and betting markets feel right now. Uh, but it depends on how the economy does between now and then. Um, Mark, I'm going to stop here and open it up because there's a lot going on and uh, coming off a, a long weekend. I took some time off last week. I didn't have all the stuff on. But we'll open it up to questions and comments. First, no questions. Comments, questions? 
I'll give you one, Stephen. Yep. Did anybody see the Quipiniac? I can, can never pronounce this. The Quipiniac cult poll from last week. Quinnipiac. Yeah, thank you, Quinnipiac. Um, it was really interesting. They, the overwhelming biggest topic, no matter what race, sex, political affiliation, was inflation. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, it, do you think there are, I mean, are, are, are voters going to trade literally the inflation numbers? Is there any chance you get some good news on that? that could make voters actually feel like inflation's improving? Or are we just going to sit here thinking it's still difficult? Um, any thoughts the, on that? I think the inflation story is going to be very much a story that's different from country to country and even in, from inside countries from region to region um, based on your availability of of energy and electricity. So I do think the inflation issue will be a big swing. And James Carville was right when he said it, it's about the economy, stupid. And, and he believes that it's always about that. And I think we're going to see in this midterm that it will be about that. Can the inflation numbers look better by the time we get to, get to the midterms? They can. Um, but with that will come the pain if the inflation numbers are getting better, the unemployment numbers are likely going to be getting worse. So it's a question of how does that work in your, how do the numbers look in your district for the guys who are, for how the midterms actually play out. But I think it puts them in a tough spot. I think in the rest of the world, you know, the cost of living issue is going to lead to a lot of civil unrest. And um, I was reading a report over the weekend where people are looking at Brazil, Egypt, and Tunisia as among three of the most vulnerable countries for uh, unrest from the cost of living uh, issues there. Um, you have several other countries that are really susceptible to uh, military coups. And I think you're, you, you just have this, uh, all these crises hitting at once are going to really impact people. But I think, Duncan, the short answer is inflationary pressure should be higher in the short term and lower in the longer term, and we're just going to have to deal with that. And I think that's going to weigh on the incumbents. Not just here, either, in the U.S. I got a question, Stephen. Yep. Um, I was actually at a conference recently, and someone presented really interesting data on interest rates trends, and that they said that the, they rise or fall usually for 20 to 30-year periods at a time, meaning the trend continue. if you looked at the last 100 years, it goes up for 20 to 30 years, and then it goes down roughly for 20 to 30 years. And I just wasn't aware of that. I thought that was fascinating. Um, and, you know, assuming that we've turned a corner and now we're going to be in a period of decade, multi, multi-decade long rising interest rates, you know, with some choppiness. Hey, I'm, I'm curious what you, what your thoughts are on that. Is, you know, do you, do you think that that type of data is relevant, you know, and nowadays um, or – you know, do you think that we're going to have tighter turnarounds and, you know, lowering interest rates as soon as inflation gets kind of under control? And I was just curious about that. And that feels like something that, you know, affects the American population pretty directly when it comes to things like home mortgages. Um, that's a great question. Ray Dalio has done a, done great work on this, where he's talked about the, the debt cycles, the mini booms inside the longer term cycle. And I think what we're seeing in, in the global economy today is this rolling uh, pockets of inflation and pockets of deflation going on. Um, so I think it, that it creates a very cloudy um, 
inflation picture. Um, so I think we're going to have that where we see these rolling kind of recessions and rolling kind of inflationary and deflationary cycles going on inside the economy, which is going to make our jobs even more difficult. Um, on the on this question about interest rates, they do tend to go in those cycles because it takes a long time to get out of a debt problem when you have a debt problem. It doesn't take as long to get into it, but it is tends to be a slow buildup. And then all of a sudden you see spikes up where the rates move up very quickly because that's when the economy overheats. So you go into these periods where when you have a debt hangover, you see much lower growth and you don't have the inflationary pressure to keep rates low. And then as the economy starts to rebound, you start to have the rates go up and the inflationary pressures start to rise with that. And we're just a boom and bust world right now. So I think you will see that. I'm not sure the cycles will last as long like we had this great 40-year downturn in rates, right, that we had in the U.S. I don't think you'll see it quite as extended as that um, on the upside, but I think you the, the outcome of it is usually just these periods of uh, booms and busts. We have these low growth, low interest rate periods that start to creep up, and then the inflationary pressures come in, and then once those pressures come in, you get this immediate spike up because like we're seeing right now, when you get the when you can't keep up with your standard of living, you ask for higher you need to get higher wages to keep it up, and then all of a sudden you have these big contract spikes. And I think that's what you're gonna see. So I think you'll have a series of boom and bust kind of things. But I, I think what's interesting about this economy is these little boomlets and uh busts that we're having that are going on and have been going on pretty steadily for the last two years. And you see that in the work from home and the return to work kind of beneficiaries and who's gotten hurt by that. You see it in the in the shipping from, you know, shipping rates from China to the U.S. are down 60 percent from last year. But then we have inflation in energy and food this year. So you're seeing lower inflationary costs on one side, higher on the other. And we're going to keep seeing things like that um, due to the really the volatility and uncertainty that we think is going to continue to continue to exist and persist in the in the uh, global economy. So I hope that answers your question, Philip. Mark, this is Tom McGill. I had a quick question for Stephen. And Stephen, thank you. This is brilliantly clear information. Just uh, the, of all the data you look at, I'd love to come away with the thing you think is the brightest spot and the thing is the darkest spot. Um, and the third part part was just how are you reading the, the is the real estate market cooling? Uh, again, I find with some of my old family offices are still doing huge commercial real estate deals. They're stuck there. They have these huge portfolios. COVID scared them. They've hung on. We're selling for record prices. So I'm just wondering how you see those things and, and how they might or might not impact the election in terms of people's read on, on the, on the, on the, uh, residential real estate market and just how that all plays into what you're looking at. Um, you know, the, for us, everything starts with three things, right? The outlook for interest rates, inflation rates, and corporate profits and our whole, view of the world begins and ends with those three. Um, other things go on around it. So I think the brightest spot for me is that the U.S. is going to be a magnet for capital. Um, I think we're just going to uh, continue to attract capital from the rest of the world and for a whole number of reasons that the U.S. I think has some strategic benefits and what's going on with the geopolitical shifts actually will push more capital back into the U.S., um, whether it's onshoring or even just our interest rate differentials 
for quality of interest rates, things like that. So I think that's a bright spot. I think the darkest spot for me is the global debt situation and the challenge that that's going to create for policymakers when their bandwidth for bailing out the, their countries is going to lead them to do more short-term stuff that has very low payback rather than doing the smart long-term investments that we, we all know need to be made in all the different countries. Um, so I think those are the kind of the bright and the dark spots for me. Um, and that, that dark spot um, actually leads to, I think, a lot of social unrest is potential here. And I think that's a concerning issue for me because I, I don't see the policymakers taking the long-term steps to deal with the structural issues. Um, and we just keep trying to put Band-Aids on problems that are, require real surgery. So I think that's the issue. For housing, I think there is a, a reset in the housing market in the U.S. and Canada in particular. I'm not as current on the rest of the world, but in the U.S. and Canada, we've gotten extremely overvalued in terms of the markets because you have to make an adjustment that's a shift from a zero interest rate or negative interest rate world to a world where we've seen moves up of, you know, two and three percent. And if you think about that, I think it adds something like 18 to $2,500 uh, onto the typical average um, more. I think it's $1,800 on the typical average house price in the U.S. for a mortgage on a monthly bill. And I think that is crippling for so many people. And I think that will weigh on the housing market and should see some housing prices come back. Um, I think on the corp commercial real estate side, it's interesting. You saw Amazon pulling back from some of their expansion. You're starting to see others. And I think there's a bunch of people waking up to the fact that where you used to always hold your, real, your commercial real estate forever, mainly because you had the embedded taxes and you're getting the nice cash flows um, the, to sell the building and pay the taxes really didn't make any sense. I think for the first time, people are starting to think about that paradigm a little differently because the uses of commercial real estate are under question right now. And so many different industries are trying to figure out their future real estate needs. So I think that's going to be under some pressure for a while, which will create some great opportunities for some and create some challenges for others. And I think the uh, the different properties will be a be an in- interesting issue for that one. David, and one second, Adam. You, that question, Tom, reminded me of uh, – of our survey I, that I sh- we're we're doing future both asset allocation surveys, which is down here. What questions to include? We talk about things that are going to affect you. What's attractive? What scares you? Um, and you give me an idea of how to how to frame that. But I just put in the chat. If you're an allocator, um, you know we're we're wanting your input on that survey. And I I think we can do something really interesting with the questions. And the funny thing is, you, you, that's our theme. What scares and excites you? So you, you, you get us. That's what we like to talk about. Uh, Adam, sorry. Go ahead. Thank you, Mark. Stephen, great presentation. Um, question regarding discretionary income. How is that being impacted at the moment? What, how is that trending? Because that's certainly also an uh, indicator. Well, obviously, it's an indicator of the economy. But what what is your uh, the, and the inflation's coming faster than the wage increases, so that's the answer, Adam. You know, we're people so behind the eight ball. Discretionary income, obviously. Yeah. yeah, people behind the eight ball, and um and the wage and and that's the big issue for 
leaders in Europe right now with them looking at providing energy subsidies so that they, you know, the, the social stability is going to be a major issue, I think, over the next 12 to 24 months. And, and it's, and Putin is putting the screws to the world at a time that they're vulnerable for it. And this is the, you know, this is where we make the stand, I think. And the question is, can we make the stand together or not? Um, I think we're moving to that period for Europe. And I think that's going to be a, a big issue for the rest of the world and how, how that plays out is going to uh, really be interesting. Short term, it looks like there's some positives developing there with the, the tanks and, and other, you know, storage seeming to be okay. But uh, I, I'm not sure that the policies are supportive enough of, of our emergency crisis like we're in right now. So that's the worry. Thank you, Stephen. I, I was reading that Norway has um, has exported in volume terms more than Russia has over the past, I think, two months. So they've displaced Russia. But then again, you have to look at the volumes have gone down from Russia, period. Yeah. So it's not that high of a hurdle. Can, can I just ask Chris White, since you're on, Chris, if you don't mind, just do your, any insights on the uh, – Energy markets we've been talking about. And Mark, if I can add, Chris, if you could just touch on it from the price caps and whether you think that is a good point uh, or not. That's complete horseshit. The price caps, Stephen, never going to work. So that, that that's a bunch. You know, people, politicians feel like they have to do something. It doesn't matter whether it works or not. They have to be perceived as doing something. This is a complete waste of time, the price caps. So I did see one interesting take on it, though, is that the Chinese and Indian India would use it to ask for lower prices from Putin. So well, any any leverage that you give them at all, they'll use uh, on Russia. Sure. Yeah. Sure, but the uh, the idea here that there's a way to enforce this somehow and you know it's lunatic. I mean, it's uh, fundamental well, I, misunderstanding of the way the world works. So I, I was going to ask it. My question was a little different, uh, just in terms of supply demand. But um, but hold hold the, hold that, Michael Hammer. Did you get a chance to speak earlier? I had to step away. You had your hand up. Oh, I didn't. Um, but I wanted to ask Stephen, Chris. So in the news, number of reports, one and a half trillion in margin calls on European gas, um, really stressing the market over there. And the other thing that I note is, um, natural gas is up in Europe, but has been drifting down in the U.S., which is, Kind of interesting, uh, especially because we should see the um, damaged LNG export terminal down in Texas uh, coming more fully back online in the near yeah. future. Doesn't matter whether it comes online or not. You still have a lot of trapped gas here. There's not a way out. That facility comes back online. There's a way out for a little more, but that's it. So 
There's no reason for the two markets, the U.S. market and the world market for gas, to be to move together or to be at all aligned. That was a theme of how how disaligned our economies are, North America and China uh, today. Um, Eddie Vonderpart, you were just are you back from your you're just back from Europe? Any impressions yeah. you have? Yesterday, um, in in the countries where I were, Spain and the Netherlands, there's um, big fear of uh, ongoing inflation driven by the energy prices. Um, and you, you see a number of bailout packages, as as, as Chris said. The, the, the politicians have to do something. In Germany, 65 billion, and I think today, if we're in the UK, or something like 100 billion, um, and that's no small small matter for these countries are significantly smaller than the US. Uh, but that's that's front and center on everybody's minds. Average uh, energy prices for for families are tripling or quadrupling, uh, which dramatically reduces their 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 income and their their uh, in. And, and this is on top of the of, of the fear of of Russian war, right? Which hasn't plus, subsided. Plus, their view of the world is just impacted. Yeah, it's it's uh, and, and you see it. The, you see it. Uh, the longer it drags out, the longer this is going on. The combination of the war and the energy crisis, if you like, uh, the, the 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 worst. The more people get worn down, and the worse it gets. It's uh, it's not great. Yeah. <clears throat> Stephen, what do you think about the European sort of equity markets, if you like, considering this? I think it's dicey. I think it's just hard to. I think. I think in general, as I've said, equities are going to have a hard time finding their footing until inflation peaks and interest rates stop rising. Um, I think it's going to be an, a period of, of being highly selective. Um, so the things that will work in any country are going to work pretty much in, anywhere, right? The innovations that are driving things, the areas that are going to attract capital are going to be smaller and more narrow. Um, but I, I think you're going to have that everywhere. So there'll be a handful of companies in every market that are going to do well, and the rest are going to struggle because the, their input costs are going to be quite high or they're and markets are going to be high or governments are going to be raising taxes or regulations on them right now. It's becoming a tougher, tougher environment for them and their investment needs are going up too. So the people who can spend and grow are going to be a, a much narrower group in, in every region. I think it's going to be the case. Chris, we were talking about. Brazil, um, I think it was you, Stephen, that there's, you know, partly because of food, but Brazil at least has the advantage of, of energy assets. Um, and you were, but you were, but Egypt or a few other, you know, countries, um, you know, don't have the benefit of, of that. But. Yeah, it's a mess in a lot, large part of the world. This is, Think about Pakistan right now. At least half of the country was a failed state before all of this stress, right? And ah, it's terrible. An awful lot of uh, human suffering. So. Actually, that that's actually part of the answer to this question is the 
if you're a commodity producer and a commodity importer, um, will determine your fortunes will be dramatically different as a result of that. I think that's it. any one of the things too is to look at. And there aren't many commodity exporters and as many commodity exporters as you need in Europe to really um, do well. So there, you got to be price takers. And if you're in the price taking market, that's tough. Even if you think about Brazil here, on the in terms of most of the people that live in Brazil, the macro balance doesn't matter to them, right? No. They buy gasoline to put in their cars or diesel fuel for the truckers or whatever whatever it is. Most of the population of Brazil are, are consumers, uh, even though the country is a producer net on the whole thing. So it's it's very uneven in, in the way this impacts everybody across the whole world. Chris, just a, a quick comment about, um, you know, the consumption of fuel in Brazil. Uh, the trucks, yes, absolutely consume a lot of diesel. Brazil is also a large producer of um, petroleum. But uh, the biggest consumption of, of, um, of fuel in, autom- uh, in automobiles is actually uh, methanol, which comes from corn, or excuse me, the sugarcane. The sugarcane industry in Brazil is very big, so they're... They actually are in an interesting situation because they're pretty self-sufficient when it comes to to um, to fuel. To yeah, I think uh, that's a third of the gasoline pool. So you still have two thirds of the gasoline, which is refined products and refined petroleum products. So you're quite right. There's an awful lot of ethanol from sugarcane. Walter, you should know, maybe you do, but Chris has raised 400 plus million in the capital markets for your Brazilian energy operations in the last 400 million of equity, yes. Yeah, in the last 12 months? No, it's it's been longer than that. Uh, 18 18, 18 months, maybe, Mark, or something. Yeah, regardless, so that's still our, quite, quite a sum, Chris. We should connect sometime. But like in, in any capital markets activity, yeah. right? He's also the only one who smokes a cigarette on anyone's Zooms. But, <laughs> um, but having said that, he, uh, I invited him to, uh, Miami in 2019 or 20. And I wanted him to talk about the, where the cost of energy was gone. But instead, he wanted to talk about Brazil. Remember that, Chris? Yeah, I remember that. You know, Brazil was on my mind, Mark. So the uh and after say, saying that, they asked you if you had a hundred million dollars, would you put it in Brazil? Or would you put it in Colombia? And you said Colombia. Yeah, I would. But that's that's a very risk averse view of the world. The upside's probably better in Brazil. All right. Um, other questions, comments? Yeah, I've got a, just a comment uh, about that uh, real quick. I, I think one of our restrictions here is to talk politics, so I won't get into the political situation in Brazil, but let's just say it is extremely volatile. Okay, fair enough. Rob, Rob, Adam, have you spoken yet? Because your counterpart, I know you guys are both running for the end of the year <laughs> contest on, on who can ask the most questions. Yeah, you gonna, question? Do you, you want to yield the floor or do you want to take a question? 
I, I want to take the question and squash him like the cockroach he is. All right. <laughs> All right, quick, quick oh, question. <laughs> My question is: I, I, I think you're watching too much. I, I think you're watching too much Scarface in Miami to use the word cockroach, but it's okay. It's a, uh, um, yeah, it, you know, kind of interesting. Just on Brazil, and I guess Mark, you know a little bit about um, Eastern Europe, but BRICS is um, is uh, is, a, is an interesting um, entity, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and then um, South Africa. Um, and um, th- that gives added both economic and policy connectivity um, to the member, uh, to the member entities. So I just thought to point that out. And Adam, you, you know, I think you, you have some thoughts on Eastern Europe as well, but uh, this gives added community for uh, for both the leaders and the economic elite to both compare notes, best practice, and incentivize on, on trading. So that's one of the unique areas. And I, I've been involved in diligence in Brazil. Go ahead. I, I would just and no, notice the elegant way he actually did take over your question, Adam. But yes. I, I found I that's 24 years old bricks, right? I mean, r- roughly. You know, maybe it's 22 I don't, you know, we were just talking about it's all divergent now. Is who has gas? Who who has energy independence and and and, and food food independence, right? So they're yeah. all, you can't. That's an old concept. Uh, I don't even think it's as relevant. Um, Adam, go ahead. Did my, well, my question, my question, I mean, I, did, I don't want to just get the question. I just I'm just saying. I, uh, I just uh, you can you can come back at me, but it's. If you want, but go ahead, Adam. Go, no, Rob, go ahead. You were going to say something. Since you spoke, I get, you have okay, the floor. Good. <laughs> My question is: wait, wait. You want to? So sorry. Do you want to speak, Rob? Or I, since I did sort of come at you. No, let's let's hear what Miami has to say. Okay. <laughs> the question is, Chris, regarding the distribution of uh, natural gas into Europe, coming out of um, Azerbaijan through Georgia to Turkey, and also Norway. As I commented earlier, I was reading that um, Norway has has exported more natural gas than Russia over the past couple of months. But then again, you know, that we all know how, how volatile that is. My question is, do those pipelines coming from Algeria, for example, into Italy, as well as Azerbaijan through Georgia to Turkey, are those are those real um, threats? Can they can they really pick up what is being lost in volume coming out of Russia? They're not because they're they they're because they don't have the capacity. Or well, I mean, you can always build another pipeline. That's not our in the line or things like this, but there's no gas in Algeria to speak of beyond the current uh, export capacity right now. Maybe that will change in, in the future or whatever, but if you're looking for where that gas is going to come from in the near term, it's going to come from Appalachia and it's going to come from West Texas 
and it's going to come from the Haynesville or not, as the case may be. But that is the short-term answer here. There, there is a fair amount of capacity that's going to come on stream next three to five years. We need to shorten the regulatory period here and bring on even more capacity. And we need to fill this gap. If it's going to get filled, that is how it's going to happen. Not as the case may be. Now, this flies in the face of any number of policies of the current administration, right? So, and Chris, they're already slow paying the uh, permitting approval process that uh, Mansion thought he got approved, and it looks like they're not going to be moving forward with that because they got uh, the signed. Mansion, I don't really understand what he thought he did because, you know. Anybody can file a lawsuit to stop a pipeline, right? And there's no way that the administration binds every green NGO in America. So I, I, I you know, so I, I don't think there ever was a reasonable prospect that that pipeline was going to go forward, notwithstanding the deal with the Biden administration. And I, is what it is, right? So so exactly why Manchin caved in on this, once he's not a dumb guy. <laughs> right? And the thing is so so why did he cave in on this? I have no idea either. Nothing useful to say. All right. Well, coming close to politics here. Um, what uh, what else do people have thoughts on? Hey, hey Mark, just I saw in the chat uh, there was an interesting comment made with respect to China's positioning on BRICS, and um, I kind of agree where you're going there. But I think things like China are going to play. To, they're going to play things on both sides to their advantage, and and frankly, the West and the big folks are going to win, just given the mast. But I thought it was an interesting read that um, 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 Iron Gate just you know uh, uh, put out there with respect to their chat question. So it's stimulated some some interesting global thoughts there. And I guess the other point, Mark, as an update, I think you know it's not it's not uh, the sharing isn't what it used to be in terms of just Agri and what have you. There's some pretty deep technology in other R&D areas that you know that are uh, that are um, uh, that are sharing. And then you know, think about it. you have India and you've got Brazil in there, which are democracies. So you'd rather have them at the plate versus it being strictly sort of uh, like you know sort of the, the, uh, the Iron Curtain type of approach. So that's my two cents worth. Somebody mentioned food earlier on the thing, and let me just come back to that for a moment here as you think about geopolitics China and everything going forward don't forget they can't feed themselves mm-hmm. for all of the rare earths and the this and the that and the, don't forget it has to come across the sea lanes don't forget 
all of the uh, Chinese uh, conflict, internal conflict slash civil wars going back uh, centuries have always been around the issue of, uh, of food and starvation. So I think China is very well aware of that. And they're trying to they're trying to stave that off best they can. Question is well, whether it'll be successful or not. This is Tom. What a great point. I spoke yesterday with the retired chairman of Cargill, and they're making a killing right now uh, in all these sectors, almost embarrassingly so. I bet. Uh, and, and when you ask him, he's, he's got, he's on the board, but he's out. And he's Greg Page, wonderful man. And he said, Tom, uh, I said, what are you thinking about? And he said, trying to feed the goddamn world. And, um, and, and that's a serious thought we often forget here in America. Well, when you think about Taiwan and the Chinese picking a fight with, uh, uh, let the, the Japanese and the Americans think about the food thing. That's why I'm, I don't think you'll ever see that. So once again, hence my, my bullishness on Brazil and other parts of Latin America, Argentina in particular, even Chile has some pretty good farmland, but, um, and and energy's almost energy sufficient, but Brazil's a basket of food. Brazil has everything. I mean, if they could just sort of, they have all kinds of raw materials. Now we're getting into politics again. Resources. <laughs> yeah, if they could just get the politics straight. Yep. Yeah. If they took the corruption well, and put it back to more productive use, they'd have a much better society. Well, let me just, I mean, on the on the war game scenarios that countries will do, um, you know, you know, winning the 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 seas, you know, it looks like China's uh, chances keep growing, keep growing. But I wonder, do they play on? Do they play into that uh, sourcing uh, food into the equation, or do they just, you know, winning the battle? Is that the battle, or is it the war? The Chinese Navy is built for uh, an air naval battle off the coast of China, close to missile support from the mainland. It is not built for anything else. If tomorrow we found ourselves in a conflict with China, the food imports would stop and the oil imports would stop and the LNG would stop. End of story. And do that. And they can't do anything about it. And yeah, they, that's that's that, that's current case, that. yeah, that's current capability. China does not have the have the naval power to project significant power and force beyond the South China Sea, but they just launched a new carrier group. They have two more in the works, and by some estimations, they have over forty to sixty attack subs that are in some stage of development and deployment. So, their near term goal is to own the South China Sea. Their long term goal is to follow the U.S. model, which is to project. And one of the things they're trying to do is just like they have the Belt Road Initiative that's reaching deep into uh, Africa, um, the developing world, also trying to bring uh, Brazil into their sphere. They also have the Stringer Pearl strategy, which is going into the Pacific. Uh, so they want to start taking over islands and spheres of influence uh, that would project potentially as far out as Guam. Um, and if you look at some of the locations now that they're starting to have some, some reach into to include the Solomon Islands, if they actually control the Solomon Islands, 
they in essence now have an entire naval um, capability to sit on top of Australia um, and, and try to force compliance there. So this is kind of the longer term of where this conflict with China is going. It goes beyond just a, a trade cycle or an election cycle. They're playing a significant long game. They want to be the front-facing entity um, for a, uh, I mean, going back to Cold War days, to, to, to a counter-Western bloc that's going to be led by China. It's going to have Russia um, as its kind of, uh, lack of a better word, gas station or fuel supply, and they're trying to build a syndicate of countries that'll That'll, that'll, that'll prop it up in its, in its, in its effort. I mean, their long-term goal is to displace the U.S., displace the West, the, the West, displace the dollar, and export their own style of global governance, which is strong centralized command, enabled by technology, and have a large network of reliant vassal states to, to project that, that effort. No doubt. Well said. Not the question is, is that going to be a brand of uh, politics? No. Or- that people find is better because they've been selling that as a better alternative than the U.S. model. And, well, they uh, they have institutes they have institutes throughout China uh, that have been basically bringing in developing world leaders, and the whole concept has been to disparage free markets, capitalism, the Western style of governance, and say, hey, this centralized ca- uh, command structure that China has been perfecting over the last thirty years is the global governance style for the twenty first century. You guys need to jump on board and and ditch this whole concept of capitalism. That's a scary you know, thought. You know how many, I, it's all, all that's true. But counterpoint, however, is you know how many rich Chinese are in Houston right now? <laughs> yeah, the ones that aren't, in, the ones that aren't, that are not involved in, uh, in China, um, and have been basically not free to return. Jesus, Jesus well, consolidated power over the last 15 years rather, rather deftly. Anybody who could get out here is out. Lockdown stuff started. And the wherewithal to get out and, and the connections to get out, uh, got out. Yep. Uh, Houston's lousy with expat Chinese right now. I don't know about New York, but I imagine it must be true. Van- Vancouver, Canada. Might Vancouver, as well call it mini yeah. Hong Kong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, the like question that, that I get put into the chat room, do, do you think the uh, Iran deal will get done? Nuclear deal will get done, and if so, what do you think the implications of that are? Anyone want to weigh in on that? I, mean, I, I have I have my macro general I have my macro thoughts there um, on on Iran, but I'll I'll see the floor before I opine. And, and I will I will always cede to Hamlet, but I'll, I'll pull out my nine iron here, and, and I'll say like at, at this point, what incentive do the Iranians have for a deal? They've got everything they want. Yep, that 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 that's a scary situation we're in right now. Um, I think this thing breaks one of three ways: um, either a deal is pretty much done, and they're um, uh, both parties in terms of the West and Iran are are going through and dotting I's and crossing T's, which means Iran will have nuclear capability um, uh, within probably the next few months. And this is something that we're solely being conditioned for. And the the question is, what kind of arms races that kick off in, in the, in the Gulf, in the kingdom and the rest of the Middle East? Um, That's, that's the best case scenario, I guess. Worst case scenario, um, Iran will accept whatever deal um, knowing that they're going to walk away with it in a matter of months once they get to the nuclear capability on their own, 
Um, so they really don't care. Worst case scenario, um, we're starting to have a strong in- inclination, understanding that Iran may be nuclear capable already. Um, and they're going to, the administration is now basically looking to kill the deal or looking for the deal to fall apart, uh, to blame the prior administration and use that as a talking point going into 2022, knowing that Iran is nuclear capable. Just to understand Iran's nuclear capability, when it comes to enriching uh, uranium, once you've perfected the process on how to enrich uranium from raw all the way to nuclear grade, um, all, all it is is a, is a matter of time and resources. Iran has already shown the capability to enrich uranium. Now it's just a matter of having enough resources and cascades to enrich to nuclear grade. And that's what the JPCOA or any kind of sanctions uh, was meant to stop until there's some sort of regime change or some some saner uh, people in power in Iran, which is obviously not the, the tra- trajectory we're on. So um, Iran has, in a perfect world, the ability to become a nuclear state. Do they have enough runway to get there? That's been a big, big question, but um, very, very obvious that going back even before Trump pulled out of the deal, Iran was was quietly working on creating redundant systems throughout the country. So no one series of strikes or attacks could take the entire system offline. So that's the that's a scary deal or the scary scenario we're dealing with there with Iran. It's it's not as much the impact on energy policy, which which there will be, but it's the impact on the overall stability and balance of power in the Middle East, which is the scarier thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And 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 I I think too, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago. I don't know if it's a matter of weeks or a little bit over a month that Israel was uh was doing um significant war exercises out in yep. the Mediterranean, uh, you know. In, in preparation for all this, you know, further, you can look to the, the alignment between Iran and the Soviet Union. Well, sorry, Korean slip, Russia. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and also Turkey. Turkey's in there. 